Welcome to this episode of Stacks and Stories, the podcast of the Mississippi Library Commission. On this episode, Mississippi author Mary Carol Miller discusses impressive Mississippi buildings, such as hotels, dormitories, and churches that were destroyed by natural causes or outright abandoned. This lecture was co-hosted by the Ricks Memorial Library of the Yazoo Library Association, and the presentation was made possible by a grant through the Mississippi Humanities Council. Please note that the audio has been pulled from the video Lost Mississippi, originally recorded on July 17, 2020, as part of the Mississippi Library Commission's Lunch Lecture Series. The audio has been edited to fit the podcast format. Stay tuned. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Library Commission's Lunch Lecture Series. The series is sponsored by the Mississippi Humanities Council, and today's talk is co-hosted by the Yazoo Library Association. We are live streaming on Facebook as well as doing this live on Zoom, and we are, will put this on YouTube later as well. For our, our Zoom folks, please remain muted. If you have a question, type it in the chat and we will loop back at the end of the talk. And if you're in Facebook land, you can comment on the feed and then uh, we'll, we'll get to you as well. So today we're gonna hear from Mary Carol Miller about Lost Mississippi. Mary Carol, Carol Miller is the past president of the Historical Society and the author of Lost Mansions of Mississippi Volumes 1 and 2, Lost Landmarks of Mississippi, Great Houses of Mississippi, and Must See Mississippi. We have a theme here. So welcome, Mary Carol, and I will be moving the slides along, so just let me know when it's time. Thank you, Tracy. I appreciate your invitation to do this. I've been looking forward to it. And it actually got me back into Lost Landmarks in Mississippi to look at some uh, old friends, so to speak, that I hadn't seen in a long time. It's probably been, it's been close to 30 years ago that I got interested in the pre-Civil War houses of Mississippi that were no longer extant, that didn't exist. And I started doing some research into some of those houses. That turned into a magazine article, which turned into two books. Uh, with University Press on lost mansions. But in the process of doing those books, I kept running across references or pictures or descriptions of public buildings, churches and colleges and courthouses and asylums and jails and you name it. And I would just sort of make a note about those to go back and look at those later. Richard Cawthon at the Department of Archives and History actually suggested the concept of doing a lost landmark series. So in 2002, University Press published Lost Landmarks of Mississippi, which was a compilation of just various public buildings rather than residences. And one of the more interesting aspects of having that collection of buildings to me was that many of the structures were post-Civil War rather than pre-Civil War. So you're getting into the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, even some of these into the 1920s, when you're in a much more exuberant public architecture style. So some of these buildings that are in Lost Landmarks of Mississippi, when you look at them now, they're all gone. Obviously, they're lost. Uh, although I've, I've, all, the, all these years, I've had readers ask me how they can go see some of the structures <laughs> that are in Lost Mansions and Lost Landmarks. I said, you're, you're missing the point here you get to see a style of architecture that is just wildly exuberant with towers and porches and turrets and various structures as Mississippi went through a period of relative prosperity in the late 1800s. That wasn't reflected so much in housing as it was in our courthouses and our colleges and various public buildings. So all that being said, I wanted to feature just a few of these lost landmarks today. We're going to start off with uh, actually a couple of pre-Civil War college, and I use the term college with quotation marks. So we'll start off with Holly Springs Female Institute. And to kind of give you a, a grasp of what we're talking about in these first couple of buildings, Mississippi didn't have a public school system until Reconstruction. So those with resources in the pre-Civil War years would often send their sons off to be schooled, whether that is what we would consider a pre-college education or a college education they would be sent away to be schooled. 
a lot of the women were taught by private tutors or they were not taught at all. And obviously the African-Americans, except in a very few cases, had no formal education whatsoever. We're still talking pre-Civil War years here. Now, there's an interesting trend in pre-Civil War Mississippi for female colleges and institutes. And when we say college now, in 2020, we know exactly what we're referring to. It's a four-year institution that is post-high school. When a center of learning in pre-Civil War Mississippi was called a college or an institute, at best, it was probably what we would consider a high school level institution. Some had just the most basic educational offerings. Some had quite a broad range of instruction. Holly Springs is a really fascinating example of a town that invested so much in its education that at one time they had half a dozen colleges or institutes, some for men, some for women, or some for boys, some for girls. The very first one was Holly Springs Female Institute, which was actually funded by people who were moving to Holly Springs in the 1830s before they even got their streets laid out or got a courthouse built or did any of the usual things that you would do to establish a brand new town in recently acquired Indian territory. They had the money for a female institute. Like everything in Holly Springs, there was a financial panic in 1839. A lot of the things fell through, but Holly Springs Female Institute existed from the late 1830s until the time of the Civil War. And they managed to have enough of a student body and enough resources that they could build this very fine Greek Revival building that you see there that actually housed some of the 60 boarders. At, at maximum, they had 140 students who came from four or five different states to study in Holly Springs. And 60 of them boarded. They probably didn't all board in this building. This is the only drawing that we have of the Holly Springs Female Institute. We have no photographs at all. During the Civil War, they um, closed it and used it as a hospital. Holly Springs went from Union occupation to Confederate occupation, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth through the Civil War. And so it was used by, as a hospital by both sides. If you're familiar with the post-Civil War writer Sherwood Bonner, her father was a doctor and he actually ran the hospital there. It was burned in 1864 as the federal troops left Holly Springs. They torched this building. It never reopened. And if you go to Holly Springs today, if you can find Holly Springs High School, that was the site of this pretty spectacular building. This is one of my favorite photographs of old schools. I wish the photographer had moved just a little bit to the right and gotten it full on, but they didn't. It's the only known photograph of Corona Female College, which was in Corinth. Corinth was another town that popped up in the 1840s, 1850s, ideally situated at the junction of two railroads in Northeast Mississippi. Anytime you had one railroad in the 1850s, you were in good shape. If you had two railroads crossing, you were golden. So by the time of the Civil War, Corinth had 1,500 people living in town. There was a, um, a Reverend Gaston. A lot of these schools were started by ecclesiastical types. And he pulled in $40,000 in pledges to get Corona Female College going in 1857. Maximum enrollment of 90. Obviously all women. One building. So this one building served as dormitory space and it also served as educational space. It was designed by a Swiss architect named Martin Sigrist who did some projects all around Mississippi in the 1850s. It's a, a really a, a stunningly clear photograph. Um, if you really blow it up to a, a high pixel level, you can see the bricks, you can see the columns. It's a stunning building and you think of it in 1860 Corinth. This is really quite extraordinary. In 1862 with the Battle of Shiloh, going on and the Civil War literally landing on Corinth's doorsteps. Those very railroads that had made you such an ideal place to be located before the Civil War made you a target of all sorts of military action during the war. So in 1862, the students were sent home. It's turned into a hospital for Union troops and in 1864, it was burned as those Union troops left Corinth. So that's the two examples of the pre-Civil War female colleges when I was first doing these books in the 1990s, before the internet, I would find a reference to something that I could not find. Any pictures, I could not find. Any local documentation, I could find nothing. Had the internet been around then, 
Lost Mansions, which is probably 150 pages, might be 600 pages. The resources now are just wonderful. So you can probably go online and Google Corona Female College Corinth and find way more than what I'm giving you here. There were just so many female colleges around Mississippi that that alone is a fascinating subject. Keep an eye on our time here. This is one of my favorites. Even though I am not a Mississippi State fan, I am Ole Miss to the core, but Ole Main is one of the most spectacularly weird stories in Mississippi architectural history. When state, what would become state, Mississippi A&M, opened in 1880, they started work on a dormitory designed by C.M. Rubish of Vaden. He was an architect in Vaden, and I need to look up sometime what else he built. But he designed this 115-room, um, three-story dormitory, fourth floor is added later, for Mississippi A&M. Now, it started out with 115 rooms. It was a U-shaped building. They had a common cistern in the courtyard, no indoor toilets. So you got 115 guys living in this dorm. Each room had a zinc bathtub, a kerosene lamp, and a coal burning fireplace. That is absolutely terrifying, no matter how you look at it. It gets worse. Fourth floor was added in 1903. In 1906, they added an L-shaped dormitory building behind it, and over the next 10 or 15 years, they connected the two dormitories. So it winds up being this enormous hollow square that was the largest dormitory in America. And when they put these two buildings together, there was no concession for the different elevations, say the second floor in one building, the second floor in the other building. So you had these crazy hallways that went up and down and sideways. And it was like being on a roller coaster, just going from one part of this huge building to another. Boys being boys, students being students, nothing's changed. They would pull the hoses off the fire alarm setups in the hallways and flood the hallways and literally row boats down the hallways. They would have shooting contests. The basement had more skunks than students and was known as Polecat Alley. There's a wonderful book that came out about 20, 25 years ago about Old Main that just has the most wonderful stories. So 40,000 students over the course of almost 80 years lived in Old Main. At its biggest, it had 500 rooms, 1,400 residents living in this dorm. The state basically stopped maintaining it in the 1940s, and it was still fully occupied with 900 residents in 1959. January 1959, the students had just come back from Christmas break, and um, fire broke out up in the attic. If you see that uh, roof line there, the attic went completely around the perimeter of the building with no firewalls at all. So somehow a fire started in the attic and just raced through the attic. They got everybody out. One student went back in to get something and died. The bricks were salvaged to build the Chapel of Memories, which is now on the state campus if you're a state person. Think about that when you go to see the Chapel of Memories. Uh, next slide, Tracy. This is a building in Jackson. It was in Jackson that was actually closely connected with Jackson State and Millsex. It's called Founders Hall. Uh, this is another fascinating subject. It's the post-Civil War schools for freed slaves, most of which were started by Northern missionary groups. There were a couple in Holly Springs. There were a couple in Jackson. Russ College started out as, as one of these. Tougaloo started out as one of these. The American Baptist Home Mission Society, I don't know where they were headquartered, but they opened a school for freed slaves in Natchez in 1877. And it was so popular, had so many students that they moved it to Jackson and bought about 50 acres of land at what would now be the corner of North State Street and Woodrow Wilson. So you're thinking Bailey High School, Millsaps, the Med Center. So this was in the 1870s that they moved to that 50-acre plot of land and renamed it Jackson College. Classes, when they didn't have any buildings, they had the land, they didn't have any buildings. So they held classes at Mount Helm Baptist Church, which was a, an African-American mission church of First Baptist Jackson. They scraped up $12,500 and built this very exuberant three-story raised basement, great little tower. Once again, just like uh, the, the female colleges in the pre-Civil War era, you had students living in these buildings as well as going to class in these buildings. Their enrollment peaked at about, about 300 students, male and female, about 1890. 
along about that same time, Reuben Webster Millsaps, a staunch Methodist, opened Millsaps College, adjacent to Jackson College. And he tried to buy out the Jackson College property. President of Jackson College, which still had a fairly stable financial base at that time, was not interested in selling out to major Millsaps. So they coexisted more or less side by side until 1902. And if you read the history of these missionary colleges for freed slaves going into the Jim Crow era in the early 1900s, it's a heartbreaking story. By then, the Northern groups had withdrawn their support. They were not interested in this anymore. And Mississippi was obviously at a place where all they wanted to do was shut down any form of education for Blacks. So by 1902, Jackson College was destitute. They had this building, they had land, they didn't have much of anything else. They sold out to Millsaps for $40,000, and that $40,000 was used to buy land on Lynch Street. And they moved Jackson College to Lynch Street, where it was eventually acquired by the state and became Jackson State University. Founders Hall was retained by Millsaps and stood actually until 1973. And I was on and off that campus in the late 60s, early 70s, and I'm ashamed to say I do not remember this building. I wish I had taken a picture of it. It probably did not closely resemble what we see in this probably 1890 picture. Uh, next picture, Tracy. Mississippi Institute for the Blind, which still exists as the Mississippi School for the Blind. In 1848, the Mississippi legislature appropriated $2,500 to build a school for the blind for many reasons. Um, per capita, there were many more blind children at that time than, than there are now. And they opened a school on Jefferson Street uh, in, in what is now Bellhaven. In 1882, so some 37, 38 years later, obviously their numbers had gone up. They built this incredibly over-the-top building on North State Street, close to where Baptist Hospital is now. You, when you just look at this, you think, okay, none of these students would ever see this building. And yet they put this magnificent two-stage tower, the dormers, the porches. It's a spectacular building, and it appears to have some sort of a fountain on the front, which I assume was on North State Street. By 1889, they had 43 full-time students. Most students went through a 10-year curriculum. So they started as young elementary age students, and then they would go through high school level. This building stood until 1946, and you're probably all familiar with the Lunatic Asylum, which we may get to if we move on along here. Where University Medical Center is now was the State Lunatic Asylum, and stretching back to where the old highway department building and the VA in St. Dominic's are was vast farming acreages. You know, over the last couple of years, they have found uh, burial grounds that were much more extensive than they ever knew about. But the farm part of the Lunatic Asylum stretched all the way back into what is now Eastover, back where the Library Commission building is, would have likely been part of the Lunatic Asylum's farm acreage. So in 1946, the Institute for the Blind moved to a new building uh, along the, what would later be the frontage road for the interstate. And of course, it is now close to that, but in yet a different generation. So it's where all the new development shopping district apartments are. And this school was demolished for the enlargement of Baptist Hospital. All right, next one. This is one of my favorites. The fact that this building existed in Jackson, Mississippi, I just find stunning. And it's one, if I had a list of buildings I could go back and see, I think this might be at the top of the list. This was the Mississippi Institute for the Deaf and Dumb, which we would consider that name offensive now. That was the term for deaf people until fairly recently, Mississippi Institute for the Deaf and Dumb. In 1829, the legislature appropriated $200 to send one child from Marion County to the Kentucky School for the Deaf. There was no provision made within the state of Mississippi whatsoever to educate deaf children at that time and this one Marion County boy was sent to the Kentucky School for the Deaf. So it took another 25 years before the legislature chartered the Mississippi Institute for the Deaf and Dumb, and their very first campus was in a, a building that belonged to something called Cleaver College that was right across the street from the governor's mansion. But before the Civil War, they bought the campus and the buildings of an Episcopal College out on West Capitol, close to where the zoo is now, 
called St. Andrew's College. That school had gone out and they bought that campus and uh, moved all the, the students out there. I do not know how many students they had pre-Civil War. In 1863, as uh, the Vicksburg campaign was going on and Jackson was burned, those buildings out on West Capitol were also burned. So it took them until 1871 to regroup during Reconstruction, under a Reconstruction government. The house known as the Yerger Mansion on North State Street was bought by the state and 50 deaf students moved into that mansion to be educated. An interesting little sideline is that there was an 11 year old boy sometime in the 1870s who was a student at that school. He was an African-American boy and he was probably the first African-American child to go to school under any format with white children in Mississippi. So we don't know what happened to 11 year old William Tompkins, but that would be an interesting story to trace as well. That school, the Urban Mansion on North State Street burned in 1902. So in those times of exuberant building practices, the state found a deaf architect, Olaf Hansen, who was designing schools for the deaf all over America. And they hired him for his services to design this building that was in the 1400 block of West Capitol, which I think I have not done a Google Street View, but I think that's also close to where the original campus was, close to where the zoo would later be built. Five stories, very decorative towers, it had 175 students living in this building. Just try to picture driving down West Capitol as it exists now or as it existed 30 years ago and you come around a corner and here is this monstrous, over-the-top, decorative building for deaf students. Once again, I would, I would just love to see it. I would love to find out now in the 20 years since I did Lost Landmarks if other pictures of this have survived. This is obviously an architect's drawing. In 1916, a tornado destroyed one wing of it. It was built on Yazoo Clay, and we may get to talking about Yazoo Clay with some of these other buildings. By 1939, it was so decrepit that it was condemned, but the state didn't have any funds to build a new one. So it was another 12 years, 1951, before they finally built a deaf school next to the School for the Blind out in Eastover and moved all of these kids out of this building and I believe it was demolished. I don't think it burned. I'm sure it sat there for a while. It's almost all of these buildings sat before somebody did something with them. Uh, next picture. We're going to shift from schools into uh, hotels and spas. In the 1800s, the coast of Mississippi was the playground for New Orleans and Mobile. The people of great means in coastal Louisiana and Coastal Mobile built their homes in those cities, but they left, they would leave New Orleans in the summer and move to what was called the Gold Coast, which was Mississippi. And some of them built houses along the coast, along where it's Highway 90. But most people would just come over and stay in one of these sprawling, elegant hotels. This was the Pass Christian Hotel that was built in 1836 had numerous wings, one entire wing that was called the Texas wing that was just for single men. But it had a formal dining room, had a ballroom, had a billiard hall, a bowling alley, and they kept adding wings to it. The founder of the Pesquistan Yacht Club bought it in the 1840s and expanded it. It closed during the Civil War. A lot of these hotels closed during the Civil War. And after the war, it was bought by a Christian Brothers um, Monastery and used as a school. And it burned in 1877. But along, particularly in Pass Christian and Ocean Springs, there were just an untold number of these large, sprawling, multiple porches, elegant ballrooms. They were just all scattered along the coast. And every summer, people in Louisiana and Alabama would come spend their money in Mississippi. They're all gone. Every one of them we're going to get to, if we have time, we will get to some of the 1920s hotels along the coast. So that was a different era of hotel building. Next uh, slide. This is Owens Wells between Lexington and Durant, Mississippi. I have a real emotional attachment to this picture. This was a classic example of the two-story dormitory style spa hotels that were all over Mississippi. Owens Wells burned, I believe in the 1930s or 1940s, but it was the spa hotel that my mother remembered going to as a child in the 1920s. They would catch a train to Chua, 
and Owens Wells would send some sort of a van or a wagon to take the passengers out to Owens Wells, and she remembers going there in the summers. There was Owens Wells in Holmes County, Cooper's Wells in Raymond, Artesian Springs in Canton, and some of those buildings in very bad shape were still standing a few years ago. Allison's Wells at Way, just north of Canton, which burned in the 1960s and was rebuilt as the Episcopal Church's Gray Conference Center. Stafford Wells in Vosburgh, Brown's Wells, which was down between Hazelhurst and Beauregard, Greenwood Springs in Itawamba County, Lafayette Springs. A few of these are still standing, very few. This is where families, particularly families from the Delta, would go to these spas in the summer to get out of the heat in the Delta and the lowlands, which tended to attract more mosquitoes and other unpleasant things like alligators. Each of these spa hotels would be built around some sort of a mineral spring that supposedly had healing powers. And people would pack their whole family up. They would go and stay in these dormitory-style hotels for a week or a month or the whole summer. A lot of planters in the Delta would send their families to Owens Wells or Castellan Springs and not see them for the whole summer. They plant. Everybody else is off at the spa, which led to probably all sorts of commotion in the Delta. If you want to see one of these hotels, let's say there's maybe three or four left, if you're driving down the interstate, down I-55, and you get to the Durant exit, if you go into Durant and look for Castellan Springs Road and stay on it, it will take you back across the interstate, and you can see a hotel that's almost the identical twin of this one. It's owned by a church group now, thank goodness, who are taking extraordinary care of it. For many years, it was YWCA camp. Castellan Springs Camp, and my sister went there. Everybody I knew went there except me, and my sister completely scared me away from going to camp with tales of ghosts and snakes, and I never went. If you don't get off the interstate, if you're going south towards Jackson, you go past the Duran exit, the next highway bridge that you go under, look immediately to your right, and through the trees, you can see Castellan Springs, which looks just like this. Those are an interesting little architectural tidbit in Mississippi history. Next slide. In much the way that the wealthy of the pre-Civil War built houses that were just over the top to try to impress each other, I suppose, in the post-Civil War era, towns that got back on their feet financially seemed to try to outdo each other with their hotels. And Natchez has always been the queen bee of building bigger and better and grander and crazier than any place else in Mississippi. This was the Natchez Hotel, which was at the corner of Franklin Street and Pearl Street, if you are familiar with uh, downtown Natchez. It's built in 1891. Other than this giant balloon structure on the top, which I assume there was some sort of a patio effect up there, their main attractions were they had electric lights, they had elevators, and they had telephones. In 1891, that was a big deal. Well, this was a very successful hotel. You cannot tell from this picture. I've seen close-ups. Embedded in the brickwork were these cast iron faces that are almost like gargoyles. I think some of them still exist in some structures in downtown Natchez, but they're very, very strange. 1926, a fire destroyed most of the hotel. Part of it stood until the 1960s, and then it was torn down for the inevitable parking lot. Uh, next slide. Go get back down to the Gulf Coast. This is the Edgewater Gulf. There were a series of Art Deco hotels along the Gulf built in the 1920s that were truly palaces. When I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, the ultimate was to go to the Mississippi Gulf Coast along Highway 90 to the Edgewater Gulf that you see here, the Buena Vista, the Great Southern, and the Broadwater Beach. Highway 90 was known as the Old Spanish Trail then. It was part of a highway system that crossed the country and in 1924, a Chicago architect, Benjamin Marsh, was contracted to take 600 acres and build this 400-room hotel. In 1924, when it opened, you could stay there for $3 a day. Right on the Gulf. As I say, when I was growing up, it was still the ultimate, although it was starting to get a little seedy around the edges. Then they started losing business to Holiday Inn, Ramada Inn, the hotels and motels and beach bungalows in Florida. By 1970 or so, this was a ship. It was empty. They couldn't sell it. 
So in July 1971, they were going to implode the Edgewater Gulf. They rigged up 600 pounds of dynamite throughout the hotel. They closed down Highway 90 for a couple of miles in each direction, evacuated the beach. You could watch, but you had to be a, a ways down the beach to watch it. They set it off. There's this enormous cloud of smoke. The smoke clears, and there's the Edgewater Beach. Just sitting there. Hadn't gone down. So they went back in, they added another 250 pounds of dynamite in other places, and I, there may be video footage, I'm not sure, of the Edgewater Beach finally coming down. Uh, today, the Edgewater Mall, which has no architectural character whatsoever, is on that site. And we probably have time for one more, and this is, this is my favorite, so we'll do that. If we have another minute, we'll go a little bit further. This is one of the strangest stories in um, Mississippi architectural history. Definitely probably the strangest in the hospitality industry. This is the Pine Hills Hotel. There was an area called Shelley Plantation that was on the north shore of Bay St. Louis. It was pretty much just overgrown property in the 1920s. But it involved about three and a half miles of shoreline on Bay St. Louis. And at that time, the Old Spanish Trail, Highway 90, ran across the north shore of Bay St. Louis. There was no bridge. The, the bridge that we came to know that was destroyed during Katrina did not exist. So the highway ran right across the north shore of Bay St. Louis. So it was prime property for a hotel. So it's mid-1920s. America is just going flat out. People want to travel. People want to come to the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. So there was a New Orleans architect, Mose Goldstein, and he designed this hotel, which had, I'm looking at my notes, 185 rooms with private baths. Private baths were a big deal. 2,300 acres of property, three and a half miles of shoreline, 185 rooms. It had an 18-hole golf course. It had a private parking garage, a circular ramp parking garage that may have been the first one in America. It had its own marina, so you could get in your yacht or your boat somewhere on the coast and come up through Bay St. Louis and dock at the marina. If you think back to the late silent era movies or the early 1930s movies, this is the kind of hotel you would see. Incredibly luxurious and successful from the time it opened a week before Christmas in 1926 until 1929. And there are wonderful eyewitness accounts of October 1929. The staff was setting up for a Halloween party in the Pine Hills Hotel. They had a lounge with a stock market ticker. People would come from New York, they would come from Chicago, they would come from New Orleans, from Dallas to stay at this hotel, and they wanted a stock ticker. So there's a stock ticker in the lounge. They're setting up the ballroom, the stock ticker goes nuts, and the stock market is crashing. So this eyewitness account talks about people rushing to the desk to check out. There's bellhops running everywhere, packing people up. They're getting on the trains to go home. People had been ruined that day. So that's October 1929. By the end of November, two of the three banks that held a note on this property had foreclosed. It never opened again. So it went from full occupancy, flat out Halloween party. By the end of November, it's closed. Here's the eerie part. From 1929 to 1942, one man, one caretaker lived in this 185-room hotel and took care of it and shooed people out who were trespassing. In, in 1942, the Army leased it for about six months to put some troops in it. 1947, it was hit by a hurricane. From 52 to 68, a Jesuit group used it as, as a Catholic school. And then they moved out, it survived Hurricane Camille, and then the DuPont Chemical Corporation, which had a plant down there, bought it, put fencing up around it, and it stood until 1986. And there are some great stories of high school kids, college kids, who just used this as their playground. Here's this really creepy Jack Nicholson, the shining kind of hotel, sitting there on the North Shore Bay St. Louis, abandoned. And they loved it. So they wandered through it. They recreated the Halloween party. There was all sorts of stories with the Pine Hills Hotel. But DuPont finally got tired of the liability and knocked it down in 1986. So it's gone. And we are up to about 1243, Tracy. Do you want to do a couple more? Do you want to, do you have questions or? 
I got a personal comment that your stories are so inclusive that, you know, we don't have a lot of questions. There, we ha I, There's a couple, but keep going. Okay. All right. Let's do the next one. We're going to shift briefly into churches. This is St. John's Episcopal Church in Glen Allen, which was uh, consecrated by Bishop Green in the uh, mid-1850s has some similarities to Chapel of the Cross at Madison, if you've seen Chapel of the Cross. Same period of architecture. Most of the Episcopal churches of that era were built out of a pattern book that had come out of England. So they wanted to recreate the Gothic look of their Anglican counterparts in England. We don't have any pictures of it at its true, true original state. During the Civil War, the stained glass windows were taken out so that the lead could be used to make bullets. And so all of these empty window spaces that you see once had some sort of stained glass. We don't know how elaborate, but we, we do know that it did have stained glass. So that lead was gone. And by the end of the Civil War, Lake Washington, where this is located in Glen Allen, that area did not recover quickly. There was no money left to put the windows back in, and a lot of the population had scattered. Washington County saw a lot of action during the Civil War, and um, a lot of the houses were lost, plantations were torn up. It just didn't recover quickly. So this little church sat there until about 1900. And in 1900, there were a group of Episcopalians who wanted to revive it, so to speak, put the windows back in. They were in the process of restoring it and getting it re-consecrated when a tornado hit. It left nothing but the bell tower. The vast bulk of the church was gone. But the bell tower is still standing and there's a graveyard there. And if you just want something during these times of pandemic when you're bored and you need a day trip, drive up Highway 1 to Glen Allen. It's just south of Greenville, about probably 15 miles. And take a trip around Lake Washington. There's not a prettier place in Mississippi. On the south end of the tiny little village of Glen Allen, you can still see this tower. You can walk through the tower. You can see where the round window was. And the graveyard is absolutely fascinating. So you're right there on the shores of Lake Washington. It's very atmospheric. This picture, my scan of it doesn't do justice. This is actually the cover picture of Lost Landmarks of Mississippi. And the photographer that I worked with for many years, Mary Rose Carter, got this photograph um, one day when the sun was coming into that ruined in just a, uh, the right way and it just looks like a burst of light in the old bell tower. It's just an extraordinary picture and this this scan does not do it justice. Let's move on to the next picture. This is an interesting little story about Beth Israel uh, Synagogue in Woodville, one of my favorite towns. Uh, it's another good pandemic driving trip. When you go to Natchez, keep going. Go down 61, get off Highway 24 and go into Woodville and just drive around and look at the houses and the courthouse and the churches. It is a, it's a, an overlooked jewel of South Mississippi. Beth Israel Synagogue um, served an extremely large Jewish population in Woodville in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. Woodville had so many Jewish merchants that their square was closed down on Saturday. Everybody went to the synagogue to hear this song. It's Rabbi Cohen, who apparently was just a great preacher. So even the Christian merchants would close on Saturday and they would all go to the services at the synagogue. And it's just a wonderful, probably frame building uh, with the interesting woodwork and interesting dark and light patterns. And there's a Torah there carved into the pediment. As with many towns around Mississippi, post 1900, uh, a lot of the Jewish families moved away, they died, and their children didn't come back. So by the 1930s, there was no one left to take care of uh, Beth Israel Synagogue. It was put on rollers. I see this repeatedly throughout Mississippi architectural history. When a building needed to be moved, instead of tearing it down or cutting it apart, they would simply put rollers under it and hook it to mule teams and roll it to wherever they wanted it to go. So it was rolled into downtown Woodville and used as a movie theater. And the pews and the pulpit were given to the Woodville Baptist Church. But it burned in the 1930s. I'm not sure exactly where it was located, but it was, it was a real loss for ecclesiastical architecture. 
Uh, next slide. Just touching base, and you tell me when to stop, Tracy. This was the Mississippi Penitentiary in 1890. The same man, William Nichols, who designed the Old Capitol, who designed the Governor's Mansion, who designed the Lyceum at Old Miss, and a number of other buildings, designed the original Mississippi Penitentiary, which sat appropriately enough where today's new Capitol is. What we see here is not that building. That building was turned into a munitions factory during the Civil War, and it was blown up as Union troops were leaving Jackson on their way to Vicksburg. So the replacement was this really intimidating looking Gothic castle-like building that if you had any idea at all that you were going to wind up in this building, whatever you were thinking about doing that you shouldn't do, probably you didn't do. And that was the intention. At that time, if you were designing a prison, you wanted your prison to look like a place you didn't want to be put in and you did not want to visit. About 1900, this was terribly decrepit, and the city of Jackson was embarrassed that the state penitentiary was sitting on a prime block of downtown real estate. So land was bought in Sunflower County, parchment was built, the penitentiary moved to Sunflower County, and the state got a huge settlement from the Illinois Central Railroad and used that money to build the new capital that we have today. If you walk the grounds of the new capital, there are some very interesting uh, landscaping features there. There are mounds. There are, are strange, out-of-place swellings, for lack of a better word, around that property. Supposedly, those are parts of the penitentiary that they simply never bothered to dredge up. So they were underground, uh, part of the, the foundation that are still there. I have no idea what that means in connection with the new capital, but just take that as you will. Next picture. And this is the State Lunatic Asylum, which sat squarely where University Medical Center is now. The person who made this drawing would have been standing in the intersection of North State Street and Woodrow Wilson looking northeast. And this is the original block of the State Lunatic Asylum. Built in the, well, they started trying in the 1830s. They did kind of a hash job and that had to be torn down. Really opened about the 1840s. Thankfully, we've gotten away from names like Lunatic Asylum, but this entire part of Jackson was called Asylum Heights. Fondren, what we now know as Fondren, was originally Asylum Heights. This building was added onto, they added wings for African Americans, they added more wings for men, more wings for women, but it was still horribly overcrowded as so many of these structures were. It had graveyards, which we are now finding out involved not hundreds of burials, but probably multiple thousands of burials. There were multiple supporting buildings that went along with this, and it was finally closed in 1932, I believe, when Whitfield opened. But it wasn't torn down until the 1950s. It just sat there until they were ready to build a medical center, and they finally tore it down. A couple of stories about this building. One of my favorite stories about the asylum was Eudora Welty's mother, who lived in Utero Welty's house where she grew up in Bellhaven, had a friend who was committed to the asylum. I think, I think this was a woman who had murdered her husband. She had murdered somebody. Yeah, she was in the asylum, but she was a good friend of Miss Welty. And when Miss Welty needed a fourth for bridge, she would send a driver over to the asylum to pick up this friend who would deliver her to the Welty house in Bellhaven where they would play bridge and then she would be taken back to the asylum. Take that as you will. When I was a student at the medical center in the uh, 1970s, the basement was a lot like the old main hallways. It was a roller coaster. Between the Yazoo clay and the way the building had been built, there were hallways in the basement that sometimes went down and sometimes went up and sometimes went sideways. There were doors that wouldn't close, doors that wouldn't open. And we were always told that that was part of the original basement of the insane asylum, that they left that when they tore the structure down. And I think that's the last picture. Is that the end of it? Nope, one more, just very quickly, because we got just a couple of minutes. This was the DeSoto County Courthouse in Hernando. And I included it because there was a man in DeSoto County after the Civil War who was from France. He loved French architecture. He somehow had enough clout to have the DeSoto County supervisors use a plan from a French castle to build the DeSoto County Courthouse. And this is what they wound up with. You're not going to see that anywhere in Mississippi now. It burned in the 1940s. 
and interesting story from eyewitnesses there is that the tower was full of the county records. It was at night, the courthouse was on fire. A lot of people from Hernando went up in the tower and threw the, the county records out the window to save them. And there's a lovely courthouse there now that has murals in it from the old Gayoso Hotel in Memphis. There's another trip for you. If you're bored on a weekday, go to Hernando, which is a lovely town, very historic, and go in the courthouse to see the old Gayoso Hotel murals. It's a rotunda, and, and they're just um, fascinating. And that is the last picture, I believe, Tracy. I'm going to stop sharing so I can see the chat. I saw something pop up. Mary, that was so interesting. I have all kinds of notes I have taken about things I need to look up, um, <laughs> places I need to go well, ride. you got some field trips to take. I do. And right. let's see. Everyone is just saying how amazing the historical information is. That's kind. I did have a question, and it was texted to me because it's on Facebook. Do you know when William Tompkins attended the School for the Deaf, and, and do you know anything else about it? Look back at that. I want to say it was in the 1870s. Let me look back. Uh, 1871. He was 11 years old, so somebody with genealogy.ancestry.com, somebody with some skills might be able to track down William Tompkins, and I believe that's Tompkins with a P. T-O-M-P-K-I-N-S. I have no I idea if he was there for a month, a year, 10 years, but just that little tidbit that this was an African-American child who went to that school, that's got to be a first. Uh, yeah. So well, yes, so, some, of your, some of your watchers need to take that on and find William Tompkins. Well, I think one of our watchers is a librarian and a coworker, and she will probably devote the next few hours to trying to, to find that. Well, please let me know. Yeah, I will. Well, I will. I hope he had a happy life. I hope he got enough skills there that he went ahead and had a long and happy and productive life. What was the name of the hotel in Natchez? Natchez Hotel. Oh, okay. Well, I wrote down Natchez Hotel and I thought that's not the name. I thought I was just There's the Eola. You have, you have seen the Eola, which is still there. E-O-L-A, which was built a little bit well, it's quite a few years later than the Natchez Hotel. And the Eola Hotel, in one format or another, still stands. Okay. It's one of those, um, I think it's 1920s hotel, but it's gone through multiple hands, and it opens and then it closes and opens and closes. One thing I did want to mention, just for library fans, because the Yazoo County System did sponsor this, I believe, mm -hmm. when the pandemic is over, here's another field trip, the most elegant library in Mississippi, in my opinion, is the Rex Library in Yazoo City, which barely survived the 1904 fire. That is the most wonderfully exuberant library I've probably ever been in. And it's worth going and just walking through the doors and just seeing that period of architecture and, and what the Ricks family left to that town. I would agree that building is, I mean, it, it's unlike any other library building in the state. Oh, I know I was gonna mention the story about Eudora Welty, her mother and all of that reminded me I'm not sure which, which biography it's in, but there's a story about how an author who wrote Tropic of Capricorn and Tropic of Cancer, who was that? Henry Miller. He, Henry he was on a tour and they had the same publisher and the publisher asked if he could come stay with them. But Mrs. Welty was like, absolutely not. <laughs> so he stayed in town and they, but she, she ferried him around and took him to dinner and all of this. But she thought he was no fun because there something was going on at the insane asylum and and all the um the residents had to move their their, their belongings and drag their mattresses up the hill somewhere and she said hey let's go watch the show and he just didn't think that was like any fun whatsoever clearly missing the point of like mississippi just in a nutshell um oh, but anyway. Some, some relative of some sort of mine was in the asylum when my mother lived down there. She lived in Jackson from 29 to 32. And the, on Sunday afternoons, they would drive to the asylum and this relative would come to the window and they would visit. That's what they did on Sunday afternoons. It was aunt so-and-so or cousin so-and-so, but it was a form of entertainment. 
the, the weird thing is that that huge building sat there for 20 years before they finally got around to tearing it down. I bet there are some hijinks happening in that building after it was closed and before it was. Uh, I, I, I suspect there were lots of hijinks. I, I, Millsap students in particular, in fact, I'm trying to remember who it was who told you, somebody that I knew in Tupelo who was a student at Millsaps, who said, you just, just don't even want to know what Millsap students did with the empty and sane zone. You're right. Yeah, I, mean, I think that is a different kind of talk altogether. <laughs> one I would like to hear. <laughs> hijinks. And what year was the uh, the penitentiary built? The one that we got the picture was post-Civil War. I'd have to look it up to know exactly what year that was built. The picture was 1890. The original one was built in the 1830s, early 1840s. So it was that whole period when William Nichols was designing the old Capitol and the governor's mm -hmm. mansion and the penitentiary, say in the Lyceum. He was all over Mississippi. He's actually buried in Lexington. He designed several state capitals around the South. There's a wonderful book about him by uh, my friend Todd Sanders, who was in archives and history for many years. So if you're interested in that period of architecture and that architect. And where where was it exactly? It was on where it, the new capital is now? It's right, right where the new capital is, facing south, just as the new capital does. It was on that enormous square. You know, Jackson was originally laid out in squares and mm -hmm. parks. And that was a government-designated square. So downtown Jackson still has very much of a geometric grid feeling uh, from the original Peter Van Dorn plan. But that was designated as a government plot of land. But yeah, by 1900, the people who were building big houses on North State Street or had nice stores on Capitol Street did not want to look up and see the penitentiary a block away. The Facebook comments are full of thank yous and uh, effusive things about how wonderful your presentation was. Mary well, that's, that's just very kind. I, I was delighted to be able to do it. It got me back into a book that I don't pick up and look at very often. We would need to do another one of these. Yeah, and we may, we may have you back to, I mean, you have plenty of material, so we may, we may twist your arm and ask you to do another one of these. Well, thanks to everyone for, for coming, or uh, this will be, like I said, it'll be posted to YouTube fairly quickly. Mary Carroller, thanks for telling us all about these buildings, and y'all have a great day. Thanks, Tracy. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Stacks and Stories, the podcast of the Mississippi Library Commission. We hope you will tune in next time, and we encourage you to visit your local public library often.